What is the difference between surviving and thriving? It's a matter of financial health. In today's episode, I chat with Angela Fontes from the Financial Health Network all about their Financial Health Pulse report. Find out how income, race, gender, and more all impact financial health. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockert. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockert, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Angela Fontes. As Vice President of the Policy and Research Team, Angela Fontes oversees policy and measurement research for the Financial Health Network, including the Financial Health Pulse and Financial Spend Initiatives. Using cutting-edge data and methodologies, Angela elevates important insights for policymakers and the academic community to advance financial health for all. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, to talk about our Uh, research that recently came out. Yeah, I was sent your report and was so fascinated by the data and knew that we had to chat with you on the podcast. So your 2022 Financial Health Pulse report found that financial health dropped for the first time in five years. What is behind that? Yeah, there's likely a number of reasons we're seeing this decline Maybe it will be helpful. I'll I'll back up and say just a little bit about what the Pulse is. So every year for the past five years, we have surveyed five to 6,000 U.S. adults using a probability-based online panel to try to get a sense of how households in the U.S. are doing related to financial health. And so every year we've, we've put out a report based on the data that we collect And what was quite interesting this year and a little disheartening was this was the first year in five years we've seen a a decline, actually, when we look at aggregate financial health of American households. A couple reasons that, that we think we might be seeing this, we did see increases in aggregate level household financial health through the pandemic. And we wonder, in part, if that wasn't related to some of the stimulus package benefits that that have been coming out. You know, this year, as we've seen some of those benefits go away or decrease, 
We are also seeing this decrease in financial health at the aggregate level. And while we don't have data that would allow us to directly tie one thing to the other, it's certainly suggestive. That's one aspect. I think we also have been thinking a lot about the impact of inflation and know that that's certainly impacting the financial health of American households, as well as the market volatility that we've experienced over the past few months. So it's likely a combination of these factors that's really combining to result in the decreases that we're seeing. Yeah, so much has happened in the past few years, and I think you know we've seen certain ways that the stimulus packages have been able to help consumers in America, but then some of those have ended and there have been a lot of shifts and a lot of things that have changed in the past year with the war in Ukraine, continued inflation. There are so many different factors that we've experienced just this year alone, aside from the economic damage and volatility that we've experienced in the past two years. So, so much has been going on. Yeah, for better or worse, it is an interesting time to be a household economist in this country with with sort of this swirl of everything going on, for sure. And so in the report, income played a large role in financial health for those making between 60000 and close to 100000 obviously being more financially healthy than those making less, with the biggest impact of people making less than 30000 And I've personally actually been a part of all of these demographics. About 10 years ago when I was paying off my debt, I was making about $20,000. And when I was at my last nonprofit job eight years ago, I was making $31,000. And that first year of self-employment, I was able to double my income to 60 and it's, it's grown. And so I definitely know from firsthand experience how much increasing your income can change your life. It helps me pay off debt, be able to save, to invest, to have more breathing room. But I want to know from you and your perspective, how does financial health increase or decrease based on income? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I am there with you having been not too long ago in, in many of these, of these income brackets, having uh, been a single parent going to school for my PhD program. So I think all of us who have been in different income brackets over our lifespan can kind of remember how it feels to not necessarily have the income that you need. I often think about the relationship between income and financial health in an indirect and a direct way. And so when we look holistically at this concept of financial health, we think about that encompassing four different categories of financial behavior. We think about it in terms of how households spends their money, and that's certainly related to income, how a household saves their money, again, quite directly related to income. We also think about how a household borrows and manages debt, and then how they plan and their ability to to plan financially. And so we see the direct impacts of income where a household needs enough income to be able to afford everyday necessities and just life, and ideally has enough income that they're also able to to save a little bit of that income for long-term goals. I think in an indirect way, income certainly allows us 
to use the sort of to impact the borrow and plan metrics related to financial health really as a, as a vehicle. Um, if we think about access to credit, if we think about manageable debt, particularly for folks who might be managing a, a large amount of student debt, as maybe both of us did at some point in time, income can really be a vehicle that supports some of these other tenants of financial health, allowing us to lever the borrow and the plan side. Yeah, income can affect how we pay back our debt or if we can pay back our debt. I remember 10 years ago, nine years ago, when I first started my blog, Dear Debt, and I was so depressed about my student loans, a big part of it was because I was not making enough income to pay back the loan in a way that made me feel safe or comfortable. And it was so difficult. And, you know, it was really being able to go from having a nonprofit salary to a decent self-employment salary that helped me pay off that debt. And so I think income can really depend on so many things and affect financial health. And that affects our mental health, our physical health, and so many different other outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the findings that we present in our our report is related to low-income households in particular and and income. So households across the spectrum really saw decreases in financial health overall, Um, some more so than others, some in a way that we can determine is statistically significant um, and others not. But one of the interesting pieces we looked at related to low-income households was the impact of employment and income increases. And we found that for households making less than $30,000 annually, a job-related sort of employment boost, and we defined this as receiving a promotion or increase in hours or wages or uh, getting a new job, having a positive employment shock, really seems to moderate the decrease in financial health that we see in some of the other segments of the population. So we know for sure that there's a a deep relationship between income and overall financial health. I think particularly for low to moderate income households who may be living, more likely to be living paycheck to paycheck and relying on that steady stream of income. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. So in your report, you know, you use these financial health indicators. What were those? In other words, how can someone determine if they are more or less financially healthy? Yeah, that, 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 that's a great question. So our financial health metric, as I mentioned, has four sort of concepts, spend, save, borrow, and plan. And we think that these are the things that are really necessary for a household to be financially healthy. For each of those concepts, from a survey perspective, from a sort of very specific measurement perspective, we ask two questions that get to the heart of each of those four concepts. So we ask households, do you spend less than your income, essentially? We ask about a household's ability to pay bills on time. Are you able to to keep up with your everyday bills? On the save concept, we ask whether your household has sufficient liquid savings. And then we also ask about long-term savings, getting sort of at the wealth component that we know is important for financial health. From a borrowing perspective, we ask about 
How manageable is your debt? We know debt can often be very manageable and and part of a a healthy financial portfolio for households, but we want to make sure it's manageable. And then we also ask about credit score, uh, knowing that that is a critically important part of financial health in the U.S., having access to credit. On the plan side, we ask about appropriate levels of insurance. Does your household sort of think about and have the ability to to purchase appropriate levels of insurance, whether it be health or property and casualty? And then do you as a household have the ability to plan ahead financially? Um, Do you have the tools you need to be able to do that? And um, can you sort of think long-term or at least medium-term about what household finances are gonna look like for you and your family? So we take all of these, these eight questions that roll up to these four concepts and create an index, essentially, that lets us know what the financial health of a household might look like in a given moment. I love that it was so comprehensive about, you know, planning and saving and preparing for the future. And I think insurance is something that is definitely important, but can be one of those things that if you're really struggling with your financial health in the day-to-day, that's something kind of more medium to longer term, and it's something you're not thinking about. I know when I was really broke, I was without health insurance, and I wasn't even thinking about life insurance or renter's insurance or disability insurance or any of those type of things. But once we kind of get out of that paycheck-to-paycheck struggling cycle and we can get more towards thriving – that's when we can start to plan kind of that more medium, longer term things that can impact our financial health. I think that's that's exactly right. Insurance is is often seen for a lot of households or individuals as a a nice to have. But when we think about the catastrophic impact of a long term illness or, or an accident or something happening to your car or to your home or to your property, you know, that can really just devastate a household from a financial perspective. And so we think it's it's certainly an important part of overall financial health. Yeah. And in your report, you looked at various communities and you found that Black and Latinx communities experienced less financial health compared to white and Asian counterparts, which I'm sure there are a lot of different reasons for this, but what are the factors that are impacting this? Yeah, again, I I think this is a a really complicated issue, and it's certainly not one single factor that we could point to. I think the obvious suspect here in determining why we often see or or we see less sort of lower levels uh, of financial health among Black and Latinx communities is related to income. And income being, again, a a both direct and indirect lever that can increase or not uh, financial health. I think, you know, income aside, there are historic differences in things like access to capital markets and home ownership based on race and ethnic identity that we certainly can't ignore. And I think we're seeing in, in all likelihood some of the ramifications of that long-term and really systematic discrimination based on race and ethnic identity. I think we could point to things like higher cost debt um, for individuals who may have less access to mortgages, 
or may be paying more in credit card interest rates. When we look on the wealth side, we know that there's a clear relationship between intergenerational wealth transfers and household financial health. We also know that the likelihood to receive an inheritance or experience intergenerational transfers of wealth, uh, the likelihood of, of that is far lower for Latinx and Black individuals, and that's factoring in. And then I think we can also look to sort of not directly financial pieces here, like documentation status and the impact of documentation status on someone's ability to be banked. That may even be factoring in here to to what we're seeing in terms of differences based on race and ethnic identity. And so I think, you know, one of the things that, that our report really points out is that there's a lot of work to be done. And we're we're particularly interested in, in trying to move the needle on financial health among Black and Latinx and Asian communities. Hey there, thanks so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I want you to pause real quick and take a mindful minute. Close your eyes and take a deep breath. And exhale. Take a deep breath again. And exhale. Taking a moment for yourself is so important for your mental health. Now, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to say, if you are enjoying this episode, please review the podcast and share it on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart and share your thoughts. It'll really help spread the word about the show and help others with their money and mental health. You can also support this independent podcast and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. Yeah, it's so important to try to make things more financially equitable for everyone. And it's important to assess what is the role of racism and discrimination and redlining and the systemic things that have happened that can affect a community's wealth and wealth transfer. And these are all things that, you know, as you said, it might not be one thing, but when you add up all of the ingredients, it's a recipe for wealth inequality. Like where we are at today isn't just a, you know, a coincidence. Right. And it's, yeah, it's so important to make people aware of that. And what do you think people can do to try to move that needle forward either individually or systemically? Yeah, I I think there's a, a number of things that individuals can do. I will say, I think, I think we want to sort of think about financial health as both an individual responsibility, but certainly as part of a, of a macro environment. So we can think of things like, what could you as a consumer or household do to move the needle on financial health? But I think it's also really important to, to think about what are the policy interventions that we as a country need to think about implementing to support financial health, particularly among Black, Latinx, Asian Asian households. I think we also need to be thinking about what are the industry interventions that would support increased financial health. So there's sort of, you know, we can think of this in a very holistic way of both individual behaviors, 
but also the macro level policy environment, as well as the industry products, tools that someone might have access to, and, and how do we encourage industry to really think about financial health? I'm so glad you mentioned all of those things because, you know, in this country, we have this narrative that we can pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and we can make things work. And I think that narrative works to an extent for some people, but it does not work for everyone. And it's can be a harmful message when we're not looking at the big picture, when we're comparing situations and it's not apples to apples. And certain people have privileges in certain ways and some people have privileges in other ways or not. And, you know, we need to look at what are those factors that are affecting accessibility, long-term wealth, income. I mean, all of it matters. And it's not just, you can work harder and make it better. Like, you know, some of the people that work the hardest are not making the most money. And I think we know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I I get asked this question a lot, like what can people do to improve their financial health? And there are definitely, there are ways that we can think about from an individual consumer perspective. There's a plethora of budgeting tools that can be really helpful in trying to get a handle on what really am I bringing in, in terms of income, and where am I spending my money on a regular basis, and how can I put some parameters potentially around my discretionary spending and be able to save for long-term for long-term goals, even to save for shorter or medium-term goals. And so that's important. Um, anything that, from a consumer perspective, can increase transparency and allow us to look in an easy and quick way at what's happening on a daily basis with our finances. And then I'm a big fan of thinking about how complexity really impacts a consumer's ability to manage finances effectively. And so we're seeing from a fintech perspective, a lot of apps, a lot of tools come out that are doing that, really looking to increase transparency, reduce friction in a consumer's ability to see what's happening with finances, but also aggregate data into one place so a consumer can log in to one app and really see what's happening not only with their checking and savings accounts, but what's happening with their credit card and how are their retirement preparedness or educational savings accounts looking as well. So um, in general, I think those are all ways an individual could potentially move the lever on their own financial health. I love that you mentioned accessibility and kind of even just understanding how some of these apps and technologies work because I'll admit when I first started investing after I paid off my debt, which I've mentioned this before, I regret that I waited to invest until after I, I paid off my debt, but it felt right at the time, but it was the wrong decision. Um, but, you know, I had just started investing after paying off my debt and I opened a Vanguard account and for like four months, I just put money in there and I thought I was invested. And I went and checked my account again and I was like, it didn't really grow. And I was like, is this how investing works? And then I talked to a friend and they were like, oh, it's in the cash holding account. Like you haven't actually invested in anything. Oh no. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I was so horrified that I made this mistake. 
But luckily, it was just four months. I mean, I've heard people make this mistake over decades, which is horrifying. And I was like, oh, my gosh, can you literally walk me through how to buy and invest things? Because I don't know how to do it. Like, I literally don't know how to choose the ticker codes, how to, like, buy. I mean, no one teaches you this stuff. And I literally had to ask a friend, can you walk me through it? Because I don't know what I'm doing. And you just think about that. Like, I'm a finance writer. I still didn't know what I was doing. And I struggled so much to try to understand at first. And I was not investing my money for four months. And I've heard people make this mistake over decades, which that can be a life changing, altering mistake. Like, you're not going to retire, actually, if you're not actually invested. And so that's a terrifying mistake. And so it's so important that we actually understand how the technology works and have some handholding so that we understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, finances can be really, really complicated and investing in particular. And I've done a bunch of work related related to investing and access to capital markets for individual retail consumers. It's complicated and it's not getting less complicated. So now we're talking about uh, you can open a traditional sort of investing account, taxable investing account, but you can also go on and buy cryptocurrency on Venmo. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing all of these channels related to access open up, but it's also introducing additional complexity that's sometimes hard for folks to navigate and we don't always have the tools that we might need to understand what things mean, how to do things, or what the implications of a decision we're making today might be 20, 30, 40 years down the road. So I'm excited to see all the innovation in fintech. And at FHN, you know, we have such an amazing relationship with industry that that's a super exciting part of my job. But I also, you know, think that making sure folks have capabilities to navigate this world in terms of finances is really important. Yeah, it's so important for people to reach out and get support if you need help. I mean, luckily, I had an established network with personal finance bloggers and friends who kind of knew what they were doing. And so I could just be frank and say, hey, this is really embarrassing, but I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't think I'm actually invested. Can you literally walk me through this? Because I don't know what I should be invested in. I don't know what these ticker code means. I don't know how to actually make a purchase. Can you just walk me through it once and then I'll do it again? And that person helped me through it. And then I've been doing it on my own since. But for people that don't have a mentor like that or resources, I mean, it's so difficult. And I think in that case, you know, you can try to talk to the investment provider, whatever platform Hopefully, they'll be able to help you walk through it. I also wanted to talk about the gender divide that was clear in your report. So in the financial health report, it said that there was 39% of men who experienced financial health compared to 23% of women. What are the economic and social factors creating such a big gap? Yeah, I think a lot of the factors that are resulting in this gap for women are likely some of the same factors that we see impacting the differences based on race and ethnic identity. Lower incomes, less access to, to capital markets, 
But I think it's interesting to think about both in terms of gender, but also in terms of some of these uh, reasons we might see big differences in financial health based on race and ethnic identity are sort of what you alluded to a minute ago. You were able to reach out to a network that could help you figure out how to make sure you're invested. You know, we do know that there are differences in, and research tells us there are differences in how children and kids are spoken to and acculturated related to to managing finances where we see boy children having additional conversations compared to to girl children and certainly the ability to have those conversations and and learn about finances, there are major differences based on race and, and ethnic identity. And so having that network or having had the conversations with your parents about finances, learning from your parents or grandparents or family members or community about how to manage things like investments is really important. And we know that that there are big differences in how that works and the sort of resources that folks have based on gender, race, and ethnic identity. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah, I think it's so important that we understand how sexism and racism affect finances, just how cultural conditioning affects the differences between what happens with boy children and girl children and women and men, and especially what happens also with non-binary, LGBTQ. So many different identities are getting left out of the conversation, right? And it's like, we all have to deal with money. So why are some people getting more of the conversation when this is something we all have to deal with? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from a policy perspective, we're starting to see some states now, it's at the state level, require courses in financial education either at the high school level or uh, for some state universities at, at the university level. And, and I'm, a, I'm a big fan, and I think that that's really helpful. At the same time, I think some of what is often taught in, in traditional financial education doesn't get to some of the capability issues that you mentioned earlier. So I may know how to calculate or understand what APR is, but I might not know how to go online and shop for the best credit card for my needs. Or I may not know how to manage through an online portal my investment accounts, right? And so I'm thrilled to see some of the policy changes that are happening related to financial education and just making sure that young adults and teens are getting some sense of financial education or or how to manage their finances. But I think that the solve around financial health is much, much bigger and much more complicated than financial education. So it's a great step in the right direction and, and more is needed. Definitely. So what are some financial products, tools, or resources that people can utilize to boost financial health? Yeah, as I I mentioned, I think that there are some really great apps and tools on the market from an individual perspective that can help a consumer get additional insight into what's happening with their finances. Um, So some of these data aggregators that, that allow you to log in to one one app and see the holistic picture 
of what's happening with your finances. You can see your transaction accounts, your checking and savings. You can see your wealth accounts and what's happening there. You can see your credit and how you're managing your credit effectively. So anything that's increasing transparency, so consumers have good insight, and decreasing complexity, so they don't necessarily have to log into four different apps and look at have four different passwords. Anything that's doing that, I think, is a benefit overall to financial health. And we're seeing more and more of these kinds of fintech innovations happening, which is really exciting. I, you know, I think there are some sort of tried and true things that individuals can do. Check your credit, right? Pull your credit report on a regular basis and just make sure that what you think is happening with your debt and credit accounts is what's being reported. And if you do see errors, make sure that you're addressing those and getting those taken care of so you do have the, the good credit score that um, is an important part of financial health. You know, budgeting tools, certainly whether they're offered through your financial institution or again, some of these fintech innovations, as well as financial education that's offered through a lot of either fintech apps or through financial institutions. We're starting to see more and more of that, um, that financial services industry folks are recognizing that providing some education uh, at, at sort of the point of service can be helpful. Love that. Yes, definitely recommend everyone check their credit report at annualcreditreport.com. It is free and you can check your three credit reports and see if there are any errors. You can also sign up for free credit monitoring services. So for example, a couple of years ago, I signed up for Credit Karma and someone had created, um, opened a credit card account in my name at Old Navy and I was like, I haven't been in an Old Navy in 10 years. And luckily, because I knew that, I was able to shut it down right away once I got the notification before any purchases were made. So that was a very helpful tool for me to just, you know, help mitigate and minimize fraud right away. Yeah. And I think it's an important way to feel a little more in control of our finances. We often use credit and don't think about the greater impact of that, but you know your your credit score and what's reported on your credit report has really huge impacts on things like your ability to obtain a mortgage or your access to debt should should you need it. And so having that control of being able to see the data that's being reported about you and and make sure you're you're reporting anything that's inaccurate right away is super important. Thank you so much. Well, it's been so wonderful chatting with you and hearing more about the Financial Health Pulse report. Is there anything else that you'd like to share from the report or any closing notes you'd like to share with our listeners? No, just that, you know, I think we're in a really interesting and, and complicated time when it comes to, to household financial health. And so having greater awareness, both as a consumer, about how inflation might be impacting your ability to manage money from a policy perspective and you know starting to think about the right policy interventions to support financial health in this country and then also from a 
industry perspective, you know, is I think going to become more and more important based on what we're starting to see in the data as reported in the report. So I think that's the big take home is there's a lot of there's a lot of outstanding questions based on our initial findings. And um, I'm hopeful that we'll have renewed interest and certainly at FHN we'll be keeping an eye and watching out for um, what do these decreases really mean and how do we reverse them and and mitigate the impacts of what's happening. Yes, if people wanted to nerd out and check out the work that your organization does as well as the report, where can they find more information? Sure. So if you go to finhealthnetwork.org, that is our website. We have an enormous amount of really amazing research and all sorts of really good insights. And the, I believe the trends report is right on that front page. So you should be able to find it right away on thinhealthnetwork.org. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you and love sharing all the info with our audience. Thanks, Melanie. Appreciated being here. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a Mental Health and Wealth Hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.